This morning, we're reading from John's first letter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the reading of God's word. Good morning. Let's pray. What a glorious uh, truth it is, Father, that we just sang that um, even though our sins are many, um, your mercy is more. God, we thank you and we praise you that, um, that your mercies are new every day. And God, I thank you that uh, we, by faith in the forgiveness of our sins by the faith in your perfect life and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection, God, that we are um, anchored in behind the veil forever. And God, we thank you that even though we continue to sin, God, that your mercy is more. And I pray, God, that today that you're, this passage in 5 verses 1 through 5, God, that we would be encouraged and reminded of your love and we would be compelled to... Um, to obey, to live in submission to your commands for your glory and for our good. So, God, have your way with us here this morning. Please um, help me. God, I'm a beggar um, in need of your grace this morning. Help me uh, stand behind your word. Bring no offense to it. Spirit of God, may you take your word um, from my mouth and impact my heart and each of our hearts for your glory and our good. We love you and all of God's people said, amen. amen. Good morning again. We are in uh, 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Thank you, Jolene, for reading that. Uh, the sermon series is Blessed Assurance. And if you have not um, been able to join us in all the sermons, I'd encourage you to, uh, to catch up. Go to the website and, and, uh, and download and, and listen. Uh, today, I've, over, I've titled the sermon, We Have Overcome. And the, 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 um, John is going to remind us that because of our faith in Jesus Christ, because of uh, who we are in Christ, um, we have overcome. We've overcome the power of Satan, the power of sin, the power of death because of our union with Christ, and we are overcomers in the future. And as I was uh, just unpacking this, I was just thinking a little bit about my own journey, and I know some of you knew my journey, and I'm just going to tell you a little bit more about it because I think, it's, um, I think it's profitable, and it lends itself to where we're headed here today. Um, there were years in my, in my upbringing, I grew up in a religion where I knew um, the power and the uh, majesty and the anger of a holy God. 
I had a fear of God. I had a, a fear of God that if I um, was, was to live my life in disobedience to him or the authorities that he put in my life, my parents, uh, the teachers in the school, um, that I would be punished in some way. And there's some goodness in that. I lived in fear of that if I broke God's laws, his commands, that I would be punished um, today for the consequences of my mistakes and my sins, and that I would be uh, potentially um, punished, um, put away in hell for eternity if I didn't uh, sh uh, shape up. So I lived in perpetual guilt and fear that um, at some level... Um, I really wanted to become a better person. I really wanted to be a good person, but I just couldn't arrive. I mean, I wasn't a horrible person. I wasn't any worse than the average um, uh, toddler or a grade schooler or high schooler or even collegian. Um, but I, I just couldn't be the person that I wanted to be. I was like my two-year-old grandson who, who desperately wants to get a drink from the drinking fountain, and he just, just couldn't quite reach. I just couldn't get there. I saw that there was something that I needed, but I wasn't sure what it was. And then one summer in my teenage years um, going to a camp, I understood for the first time that God, who uh, laid down the law, wants to have a relationship with me. That he, um, he wants me to believe in him and to accept his death and resurrection as payment for my sin. And that he loved me. I was told that all I needed to do was confess that I was a sinner in need of a savior. And that I was good. I heard about this grace for the first time. And it was like drinking from the coolest of water on the hottest of days. I was 15 when that happened. Praise be to God. It was my sophomore, between my sophomore year and my junior year in high school. I believed that my sins had been forgiven and that I now had a relationship with the God who created me. What I didn't understand was the call on my life. I understood grace, but I didn't understand how costly grace was. I didn't understand that I still had a sin nature. I didn't understand that Satan was still a living force and that faith in Jesus was about way more than just the forgiveness of my sins. I figured that because of grace, I could continue living my life in the same way that I did before that I was a Christian. I was safe. I was going to make it all the way into heaven. I was unbelievably grateful for God's grace. But I assumed it meant that I didn't necessarily needed to live in conformity to his demands anymore. Fast forward. Got married about seven years after I professed faith in Christ. And I quickly got on the fast track of the world living my life, understanding that, God, uh, thank you for saving me, and one day I'll see you again in heaven. And for the next 20 years, I lived my life my way. I lived my, wife, my life in submission to, um, to me, in submission to sin, in submission to Satan at some level. 
And then the Lord started getting hold of me again. And it's when I lived in Denver. And I couldn't escape. I was so immersed in a, in, I was so close to the edge of sin all the time that I was constantly hearing the voice of the enemy that was drowning out the voice of God's love for me and his desire to have an intimate relationship with me. I've told you this story before, but the only way out is I had, I had to move. I had to get away from all that was entangling me. So I moved my family, my wife and my three kids, and dog, left the cat behind. <laughs> Joy, peace. Moved to Fort Collins and walked into a church at Weber Junior High School that had whitewashed walls, um, white tile, a guy that was speaking the word, word with a comb over, and he was speaking directly to me. And what I heard about for the first time, wow, where'd that come from? Is the love of God that's free. The same love that I heard about when I was age 15. But this time, I understood that there was a cost. It was still free. But that this free grace demanded a certain life, it is imperfect as it was and as imperfect as it would be and as imperfect as it is today. I started to understand what it meant to live a life saturated by God's love and grace and at the same time grow in desire to please him by striving to live a life in obedience to him. And I want to ask you this morning, how often do you think about sin? How often do you think about God's commands? And do you see um, God's commands and living in obedience to God's commands as a, as a smorgasbord, as a buffet that you can pick and choose whatever ones are easiest for you to obey and live in, in conformity to? Or do you see them all as God's best for you and do you have a growing desire to live in obedience to that? You see, what I see in the church today is that we're compromising, that we're celebrating rightly God's grace and God's unconditional love for us. But we feel like that means that we can live any way we want. And we can pick and choose the truths out of God's word that might be for that person, but they're not for me because God loves me and he wouldn't hold me to that type of standard. So are you living the victorious life today? Are you winning the battle over sin and Satan? And do you even want to? I want to just give you a quick review of this letter that 1 John is writing to believers like you and I, imperfect believers, saved by grace, eternally loved by the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We see in this book that John wrote this book, this letter, to believers to make our joy complete, that he is writing these things so that you can have maximum joy, the fullness of joy. He says, I write these things in chapter 2, verse 1, so that you may not sin. 
Those kind of seem contradictory. Seems like maximum joy is found in just living however I want to live. But he says that I write these things so that you would have the fullness of joy. I write these things so that you may not sin. Then he says that I write these things so you would not be deceived. There must be the possibility of believers then in the first century and us today being deceived by false teachers and by the, um, the false teacher himself, Satan. I write these things, chapter 5, verses 13 through 14, so that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 19 through 20, so that you may know him. John's aim is that believers would have the fullness of joy that comes from fellowship or intimacy with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, I understood it wrong. I believe that Jesus came to forgive me of my sins, that I could believe in Him, and that He would extend His grace of forgiveness to me so that I could go live my life any way I wanted to live it. And John's aim is so that, that we would, our, our thought process would be corrected, that we would have the fullness of joy that comes from fellowship or intimacy with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And this fullness of joy and this maximum intimacy and fellowship with the Father comes from loving God and obeying His commandments and loving other people. If you're lacking joy, if you're living in fear, If you're saying, I just don't feel God, first place to go is to ask, are you loving others as God loves you? Are you living in obedience to his commands? Last week, as we looked at chapter 4, verses 11 through 21, I think, or 12 through 21, John focused on loving others with the love that God has for us. In 4.18, John said this. He said, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. And his whole point was, is the, the, more, the more that we understand, the more that we, that, we, um, that we go deeper into the well of God's love for us, as we look back and see God's love for us in sending Jesus, when we look back and see God's love for us in Jesus dying on the cross, when we see God's love for us um, uh, with the, because we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a promise that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. The better that we understand his love for us, the more confident we'll become in loving other people with reckless abandon. The more we understand God's love for us, the more that we will be free to love others without fear of rejection, without fear of abandonment. We'll be freer to love others without expecting anything in return. We saw that the more we abide in God through his word, through, his, through prayer, and through his body, the more aware we become of his incredible love for us. And the more that we become aware of his incredible love for us, the easier it is to love other people without expecting anything in return. And can I just remind the greatest Super Bowl commercial of all time was last Sunday. Did anybody, did anybody see that, the New York Life commercial? They didn't, there was no better description of the four types of love, and they nailed agape love. 
you know, I, I thought about just, pray, like just playing it up there and then just sitting down and we can pray. Because the more that we understand of God's love for us, his agape love for us, his active, his abiding, his give love for us, the freer we are, the less fear we have of loving other people. Then in the last verse of chapter 4, last week, we were, we were told that whoever loves God must love his brother. Here we are today in chapter 5, verse 1, and he, he, he reemphasizes and expands on the same point. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. This believing in Jesus Christ is not simply um, an intellectual acknowledgement that Jesus is God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It's trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of, of, forgiveness of your sins and trusting in his love for you on an ongoing basis. In this new birth, born of God, you will have new desires, you'll have a supernatural and a growing love for Christians, those who have also been born of the Father. It's actually a family trait of those born of the Father that we love our siblings. Then he throws us a bit of a twist here in verse 2. And, he, and it seems like he actually contradicts what he said back in chapter 4, verse 20. Let me read chapter 4, verse 20 first. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, he's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. He's talking about Christians loving other Christians. For he who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. One of the active ways, the primary ways that we show love to God is by loving our brothers and sisters. Anyone who says um, they love God loves those who are born of God. If you say you love God, you will have a growing love for those whom he created in his likeness and recreated to live in love like him. The more we understand his perfect love for us, the more we'll be able to love like Jesus loves now listen to verse 2. It's almost the exact opposite of, of 420. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Before the test was, you know that you love God if you love your brother. Now John seems to flip it around and says, you know that you love your brother when you love God and keep his commandments. In other words, he's saying the proof that you love your brother or sister is that you love God and obey his commandments. His thought process um, is actually circular. One cannot love God and keep his commandments without loving the children of God. And one cannot love the children of God without loving God and keeping his commandments. God's love was and is an active give love, and those who have been born of God are to actively give love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. The way we actively love him back is to do what he asks us to do and obey his commands. How do you know if you're loving, loving your brothers and sisters? By loving God and obeying his commandments. Think about it. Think about it just for a second. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. 
Thou shalt not kill. You see, by keeping those commandments, you are loving somebody else. By breaking those commandments, you are hating somebody else. You're lying to somebody. You're stealing from somebody. You're coveting somebody else's something. Name any command that doesn't affect another human being. Remember, John wants those born of God to experience maximum joy and intimacy with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the end. Brothers and sisters, like, in Christ, in this life, we should have maximum joy because of our relationship with Christ, because He has overcome, as we're going to talk about this in just a few minutes. And this maximum joy and intimacy with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, happens increasingly the more we understand the love of God and in turn desire to please Him and glorify Him by loving those He loves and obeying His commandments. So in verse 3, he, he gets ready to give us a fuller picture of what it means to love God and the importance of keeping His commands. For this is the love of God. You say you love God? This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And I guess I should remind you all the way through, you know me well enough, we've talked about this enough times, you know God's word is that it's always about a trajectory. It's always about direction, not perfection. But my fear in even saying that is about direction rather than perfection is you'll say, well, you know, I'm in. I'm gonna trample upon God's grace. No, there's actually a striving in this new direction. He's got us on a sure trajectory, but there's actually some effort on our part as we're going to see as we get into verses 4 and 5. Verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. It is inconsistent with God's word for someone who professes a love for God to not have a growing desire to live in submission to his good and perfect commands. Now, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making a judgment on the person that you probably know who I'm going to talk about. But I saw before the Super Bowl that everyone was celebrating a particular quarterback and wanted to root for him because he professed faith in God. I don't know if he has faith or not, but I do know this, that he lives with his girlfriend and has for a number of years. So what I'm saying is, is that, that um, you can't judge somebody that they are a Christian or not a Christian. You can't judge yourself whether you're a Christian or not a Christian just because you say that Jesus Christ is God. There's got to be some growing evidence that you want to live in submission and obedience to his commands. I had a friend the other day that was making a big life decision that, re that, that um, sought my counsel and other people's counsel. He wanted to make sure that what he was doing was in submission to God's, God's commands. And I really appreciated that. Because it tells me that this, this man um, really wants to do the right thing in honoring and pleasing the Lord. You cannot live in opposition to God's commands and claim to love him. If you profess to know Jesus and to love God, yet live in rebellion to his commands, you're actually deceiving yourself. 
Agape love, God's love for us and the love we're to have towards others is not a sentiment. It's active. It wants to please. The way we love God is striving to please him by living in submission to his commands. If I say I love God but have no desire and make no effort to keep his commands, I'm delusional, actually. I don't really love God. Many Christians, many professing Christians, it's an epidemic. Accept the love and grace and mercy of God, but they want to live life their way. What's a little pornography have to do with it? Well, so what if I hold bitterness against a brother or sister? I know I hurt them, but they'll get over it. I'm opting out of this marriage because it is too hard. And there's no biblical grounds to divorce, but God wouldn't want me to suffer in this marriage. James 2.14 and verse 17 says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Here's the test. Do you love God? Do you have an increasing desire? I'm not talking about perfection. Just follow me around for a couple days, and you'll talk about um, lack of perfection. But do you have a growing desire to want to know what God asks of you, and by the power of his Holy Spirit, for his glory and your good, to live in submission to that. And John adds at the end of verse 3, I'm so thankful he adds this, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not grievous. They're not heavy for the believer. But can I tell you this? If you are feeling the weight, the burden of God's commands and you're just trying to be a better person and you can't get there, can I tell you, you have no ability to obey his commands and they will be heavy and burdensome. John said this in chapter 14 of his first letter. Jesus said this in John's first letter, chapter 14, if you love me, You'll keep my commandments, Jesus says. And I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows, nor, nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments because I love you. I will give you a helper, the spirit of God. He will indwell you. He will give you the power and ability and desire to do what I ask. It would be a sick joke if God asked us to live in conformity to his commands and gave us no power to live that out. In verse 21 of chapter 14, Jesus continues, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. They're not a burden. 
because we now have the proper motivation. It's not to climb a ladder towards God. God came down the ladder to us. And he came with us to save us, to bring us into a relationship. We now have the proper motivation. It's because of his love for us that we desire to live in submission to his commands. It's what pleases him. It's actively loving him. So they're not a burden. We now have the proper motivation. And we actually have the power to keep them. Additionally, um, his commands are not a burden because they are good and they bring blessing. Romans 7, 12. So the law or commands are holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This is for the believer. We're not exempt from the law. It's actually, he, the, the law, um, Jesus came not to, um, not to get rid of the wall, law, but to fulfill the law. And there's actually, there's blessing when we live in submission to his commands. Jesus graciously invites all to come to him. Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's speaking to the Pharisees there. He's talking to those that are trying to climb the ladder of morality to somehow earn uh, favor with God. He says, stop. I've come to you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's for the unbeliever he's talking to, but we continue to find rest for our souls when we put on his yoke and know that it is easy. It gives us rest. Here's the test. Do you see Christian living as a task, a chore, a burden? Is it something you resent? Do you love God and want to keep his commandments? Do you feel overcome by the weight of sin and temptation and all the evil that lurks in the world, Satan and death? He tells us here in verses 4 and 5, he says, For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Hey, by the way, one of the this, services like this have, like, have three or four different um, purposes. You know, one, of course, is to be edified by God's word, to leave here loving him more, more resolved to follow him. The other is to lose weight. Like, I think the heat's at like 110. So this is like multi, multi-purpose. So we're going to hand out those, those, uh, those, those plastic sweaters next week. And, and actually back in the mom's nursing room, if you want to do burpees while I'm preaching, you can do that. So we just, it's hot in here. Is it hot? It's just me. <laughs> those born of God have, have overcome the world. To overcome is to be victorious in battle. If you know Jesus Christ, you've been born again, and you've overcome the world. And the world, what does it mean to overcome the world? The world symbolizes all that is wrong with this realm that we live in. Sin, temptation, death, Satan. The world symbolizes um, all the attitudes or values that are opposed to God both within me 
and within you and without us. The world, our flesh, still rages war against our spirit. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, I think Pat preached on this and did a phenomenal job. John said, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, praise be to God. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world there will be tribulation, there will be trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. So those who profess faith in Jesus have been born of God and they have overcome the world. And we've overcome the world because of our faith, the passage says in verse 4. And we will overcome by our faith and by the power of the Spirit. It is faith, after all, not the law that gave us the victory over the world. By faith, I belong to Christ. I'm reminded that by His grace, through faith in the Son of God, I've been clothed in His righteousness. That I've been declared innocent. I've been justified. We have overcome the world because He has overcome the world. But this overcoming is, a, is an already but not yet proposition. Let me explain that to you. It's all over God's word. The reality is, is that we have overcome the power of Satan and sin and the final enemy, death, because of our faith in our union with Christ. We have overcome the world and we are overcomers. It's an already but not yet proposition. The victory of faith is complete it's a complete action, but it's also an ongoing process. So you can't rest like I did at age 15 in God's rest and go live your life in any way you choose. The victory of faith is complete, but it's also an ongoing process. We're counted as holy or righteous because of Christ. Some theologians call this definitive sanctification. It's a gift we receive through the gospel. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 10, verses 10 and 14. And, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We've been um, made holy. We've been made righteous. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected or made righteous or holy for all time those who are being sanctified. So you are sanctified and you are being sanctified. You have been declared righteous and you're becoming more and more righteous. The not yet part is, the, is what the Bible speaks to as the practical outworking of this positional holiness or righteousness or sanctification. It's not referring to the holiness or righteousness that we have already received, but the holiness or righteousness that we're to strive for. Does that bother any of you that you in Christ, saved by grace, that you are actually to continue striving? That there's effort involved?
Hebrews 12 says this, strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness or righteousness without which no one will see the Lord. We're free from the penalty of sin. We've overcome the world, but we're not free of the temptation to sin. We're still overcoming the world. We've been declared righteous because of faith in Jesus, but we're called to continue in righteousness. We have overcome, but we're called to continue overcoming. So how do you do this? How do we do this without it being like a major burden and a heavy yoke? First is to understand that you're anchored in, that you have been declared righteous. Second is to understand that the the reality of the war, the battle that's raging around you, that sin in me and sin in you and Satan in the world is alive and well and it wants to destroy us. It It can't pull the anchor out behind the veil but it will destroy the fullness of joy that God wants you to have. It will destroy the fellowship and intimacy that you were forgiven for. So I cannot overcome the world on a continual basis unless I understand the nature of sin and the nature of of Satan. Satan is the ruler of this world. But for the believer... We don't live under his authority anymore. We've been exported from his kingdom and his rule and his domain to Jesus' kingdom. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is Colossians 1, 13 through 14. For he has delivered us, past tense, from the domain of darkness. And he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have the redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And even though that we have been um, delivered and we have been transferred, even though we have overcome the world and all that's evil within and without, there's still a battle going on. Paul tells us this in chapter 6 of Ephesians. Put on the whole armor of God, he says, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, let's tell that to Washington, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle, our wrestling is not with one another, but against our sin and the prince of darkness that wants to destroy our joy and our fellowship with the Father. Before coming to faith in Christ, we were ruled by all that is evil within us and all that is evil without us. We were ruled by Satan and sin. When by faith we were transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, we have a new king, we have a new realm, we have new desires, new hope, we have new power. But even through the power, even though the power of sin and Satan has been defeated, it's been overcome, we still live in unredeemed flesh. And we're still tempted by the liar and deceiver, by the prince of darkness. So here's the picture I got. 
I've been transferred. If you know Jesus Christ, you've been transferred from the domain of darkness, and you've been delivered into the kingdom of his beloved son. And we're, we're in this kingdom, and there is a, uh, what I picture, a, a road between uh, this kingdom that I live in and the kingdom of darkness. The closer I am to this street that divides God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom, the more prone I am to listen to his lies and deception and to give temptation. The closer I get to the edge of where Satan, of Satan's realm and my sin, when I'm close, um, he is chucking bombs at me. He's lying to me. He's deceiving me. He's tempting me. He's saying things like, hey, go ahead and live your life any way you choose. God is hiding things from you. God can never forgive you. The closer to the edge, the louder his voice. But as I draw to the center, when I move away from the edge, and I draw to the center of the kingdom, if you will, where I abide in the Father, through his word, through prayer, in fellowship with the body of Christ, Satan can't throw that far. He isn't that loud. God's voice becomes louder. So if you think that you can live on the edge, you can live, you can live in the same world in the same way that you did before salvation, you're kidding yourself. And your sin and Satan's lies and deceptions and temptations is going to destroy your joy. And it's going to impede the intimacy with the Father that you were created for. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 10. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think that you can walk on the edge, that you're different, you're going to get right upside the head with a bomb from Satan. And you're going to start losing the intimacy that you were created for with the Lord. He doesn't go away. He's still there beckoning you back to the center into an abiding life. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think you can stand without time in his word, if you think you can stand without um, a, a fruitful and powerful prayer life, if you think you can stand being disconnected from the body of Christ, his local church, take heed lest you fall. And he says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That whatever temptations the enemy throws at you, other people are getting tempted with the same things. Know this. Not only that the further you move away from the edge, the less you're going to have temptations. The more that you abide in the Father, the less the enemy is going to tempt you. But when you are tempted, there's no temptation that will overtake you that is common to man. And God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He knows you're going to be tempted. And he's giving you the resources of God's spirit, his word, and the body of Christ. The way I look at it is that every temptation, there's always an exit sign. And turn away from the temptation, abide in Christ, and look for the exit sign. When I moved my family from Denver, man, I was, God was drawing me. I knew that I wanted to stop living in submission to the enemy and live in submission to the Lord. But I didn't know how to move away from the edge. And so I loaded up the truck and I moved to Beverly. Three kids, a wife, a dog, again, no cat. <laughs> Trying to get away from Satan. <laughs> I know some of you have cats. <laughs> amen. All right, hear him, amen. <laughs> Look for the exit sign. And the exit sign might simply be hey, pray, would you pray for me? Like I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I'm drinking too much. I'm watching pornography. I'm not loving my wife as Christ loves the church. I'm not, I have no respect for my husband anymore. I want out of this marriage. I can't forgive this person because they've really hurt me. Ask for help. The exit sign, move away and engage with the resources that God has given you. Temptation in temptation, God will always provide a way of escape, but you've got to look for it. And you've got to see the exit sign. And you've got to get up and leave the edge and walk through it. So stand away from the edge and abiding in the center. Draw near to him through his word and his prayer, uh, word and prayer in his body. We walk away from the edge where the enemy's voice is the loudest and our flesh is actually the weakest. And by faith, we trust and rely upon Jesus. We get the courage to walk away from the edge and draw closer to the center. And you know what? You're going to blow it. You're going you're to wake up one day and go like, how did I get next to the edge again? In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is just and righteous to forgive us of our sins. He'll never, he promises never leave you nor forsake you. He wants, to have a, he wants you to have maximum joy and maximum intimacy with him. And it is never found on the edge. It's always found in the center. So look for that exit sign. So here's a test. A couple questions for you to ask. Am I living on the edge of the Christian life? Or am I moving towards the center? Abiding with the Father. I guess I'll just leave it at that question. And if you are closer to the edge than you are the center, what is God asking you to do about it? What resources is He wanting you to employ? His Spirit, His Word, the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, thank you, Lord Jesus, for the reality that your yoke is light and it's easy. And I thank you 
Father, that you created us to be loved by you. And we see that active give love, active sacrificial give love, most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But for our sake, you emptied yourself. And you lived the perfect life that we could never live. You died the sacrificial death, the death that we deserve to die. And we thank you that you rose again victoriously. You ascended to the right hand of the Father. And that we get to live in your kingdom under your good rule. <laughs> Empowered and sealed by your spirit. And so, God, I pray that... Um, I pray that for each of us today, God, I pray that your, however your spirit might have convicted us, God, I pray that we'd move away, you'd help us move away from the edge where we would receive no condemnation from the enemy. But God, as you choose to convict us, God, I pray that it would draw us closer and closer to the abiding center of intimacy and fellowship with you, our God who created us to be loved by you. We love you. God, we thank you that you loved us first. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and close our service together. Remember our hope that we have in our King who's coming, that he's overcome for us, the kingdom he's bringing. Let's sing together.